Hey, it's Ed. Real quick message to those of you who live on the front range of Colorado. Mark your calendars for Thursday, October 3rd here in Colorado Springs because it's Palmer Land Trust's 10th Annual Southern Colorado Conservation Awards. It's going to be a really great evening, and we're going to be honoring some folks that you podcast listeners are definitely familiar with. One of them is Pete McBride, and the other is Ranchlands. And this particular podcast episode is about Ranchlands. So if you're Denver, Fort Collins, Colorado Springs, Pueblo, Trinidad, you should definitely make the trip. It's going to be a lot of fun. I'll be co-hosting it with our executive director, Rebecca Jewett, and I'd love to see you there. Thanks. Hey, this is Ed Robertson, and this is the Mountain and Prairie Podcast, where I introduce you to some of the innovative individuals who are shaping the future of the American West. I meet most of these people through my work in land conservation or through my hobbies and interests that revolve around spending time up high in the mountains. My guests include ranchers, writers, entrepreneurs, conservationists, athletes, artists, adventurers, pretty much anyone who's doing important work, has an interesting story, and loves the American West. My guest today is Duke Phillips III. Duke is the founder and CEO of Ranchlands, a Colorado-based family-owned ranch management company. If Ranchlands sounds familiar, that's because last week's episode was with Duke's son, Duke Phillips IV. You may remember the younger Duke referenced his father's philosophies around business and leadership several times, so I thought it'd be fun to have the elder Duke on the podcast for an in-depth conversation. And it definitely was in-depth. In just about an hour, we covered a wide range of subjects, everything from the future of ranching to world travels to poetry. Duke has led a fascinating life, starting with his early years spent growing up on a remote cattle ranch in rural Mexico. His 20s were devoted to traveling and working around the world, including places like Europe, Central America, Australia, and the Bering Sea. Around age 30, he got his first, quote, real job in ranching, which eventually led to the formation of his company, Ranchlands. Since its beginnings over two decades ago, Ranchlands has set a new standard for what's possible when ranching, conservation, education, and business are successfully combined. And Ranchlands' partnership with Colorado's State Land Board is a case study in effective, mutually beneficial public-private partnerships. I caught up with Duke on the phone, where he was gracious enough to take time away from one of his New Mexico operations to chat with me. We started by talking about his childhood in Mexico and the lessons he learned from growing up in such a wild and remote landscape. Then we talked about the series of travels and jobs that led to his eventually founding Ranchlands in his mid-40s. From there, our conversation hits on a variety of subjects, including the joys of working with his kids, Duke and Tess, the ins and outs of the bison ranching business, and his thoughts on the recent popularity of regenerative agriculture. There's very little overlap between the topics covered in this conversation and my conversation with the younger Duke, so be sure to check the episode notes for a full list of all the interesting information referenced. Hope you enjoy. But maybe the best way to start is just at the very beginning, and can you talk a little bit about where you grew up and maybe your childhood, because I know you've spent some time living internationally, you've spent time in the States, and, and I'd love to just kind of start at the beginning and get the, the full chronology. Yeah, Can you okay. start with, uh, sure. where'd you grow up? Um, yeah, I was really lucky that I was raised on a, 
a large ranch in old Mexico, south of Eagle Pass, which is south of San Antonio, Texas, about 150 miles in, um, in the Sierra Madres. And there was there were a big there was a big area of large ranches and closest town is actually the closest village was five hours away. Uh, it was a horse culture. Uh, we just had wagons and mules and horses. Um, a community lived out uh, out away, you know, set back in time a hundred years. So um, I grew up speaking Spanish, couldn't speak English to my grandparents um, when I was I don't know, you know, five six. Wow. Seven somewhere in there, and uh, would you know uh, would get up in the morning. My dad raised me uh, as if he was afraid I wouldn't uh, know how to work. So uh, <laughs> I got the horses up at um, I don't know, you know, like two or three in the morning. Milked cows at four or five. Started school at six. Damn. Out of school at noon, and then uh, the the cowboys would leave horses up, and so my brother and I would go saddle up and catch up to the cowboys and ride with them the rest of the afternoon and then come home and eat and go to bed and start over the next day. So it was, uh, just grew up with, with men on horseback and with people who lived in a real isolated community. We had a commissary, we had our own light plant. We were very self-sufficient. Um, um, yeah. And so how did your you know, dad end up there? Much, he was just, interested in large scale ranching. And back then you could buy a, a, an acre uh, for five bucks or less. And, and then you could have, you know, labor was cheap. And, and so it was just, a, um, I don't know, maybe a, a lot like it was in the United States a long time ago with, uh, the first people who would go out and settle land it was similar to that in some ways. So, so thinking about your time growing up there internationally, you know, in Mexico, different country, and then, you know, thinking about your life now and, and your business and just your philosophy, do you attribute any of your, I mean, I'm sure you do, but what do you attribute from that time growing up in a different culture to your ability to, to do things outside the box now and think about things independently? Mm-hmm. Well, I think several things. One, it was a real ranch. Uh, it, it it had to pay for itself. So uh, it was a business that was not subsidized. And so we, I grew up in that kind of environment. Uh, it was very serious work, you know, what we did, just like any business. Um, second thing, I think, was that it put me in 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 a pretty wild place. And I grew up appreciating the places where, you know, maybe no one had been before, you know, the people were all had a real high, uh, high knowledge of plants. You know, we'd make paint brushes out of yucca plant. We'd roof the, the, the houses with, with, uh, plants. We went out and harvested, we cut our own wood. So everything was really close to nature. So I grew up, um, with that. And I think that really made a big difference. And horses were really big in my life. I, I would have, eight or nine horses in my string and I would take them out, you know, one by one in a long string and go out and camp out for four or five days. So, you know, that also something that, that I have today that I brought from that time period. Yeah. And just a community, this sense of community living out middle of nowhere, relying on each other, working, playing, living together uh, with all the same people. It's, it's a unique thing about ranching. It's really cool. And, and so when you think about how, you know, you grew up working that hard, getting up that early, 
living really on the fringes of society where a mistake could you know cost you your life pretty easily and then you know thinking about what you do now and how you bring in people with with very little ranching experience and and teach them about the land and about the business and this is maybe kind of a weird question but but how do you have is it is it hard to have patience with people when you have come from this just extreme background where your baseline <laughs> is 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 so tough and hardcore yeah. and how do you yeah, I mean how do you have patience oh um i don't know i used to i used to not have patience oh really that didn't work so good. yeah i grew my dad was pretty impatient i grew up uh, with very dogmatic and things and um i'm i'm an extrovert and and so i would you know pretty um pretty single minded about things but i had several experiences with people who came back to me and said you're you're an asshole you know you you need to back off and so over time i just changed myself and you know when you work with young people you have to have patience just because they they're just from a different world and they're not doing anything wrong um but they're constantly making mistakes at first and so you just have to come to terms with that ahead of time and say, okay, there's going to be this period of time and and I'm going to have to be very forgiving and very, uh, very patient and, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so, you know, over time you develop that, you know, especially when you work with a lot of young people like we do. And so when did you come back to the U S for good? When, when did you leave Mexico and come back to the U S? Well, uh, the first, it was in two two stages, I guess. The first one was when I went off to school in eighth grade, went to boarding school in Dallas and then university. And then uh, when I was 21, my dad sold the ranch. And at, that was when I went back and packed everything up and basically uh, hit the, the truck on the side, say, ready to go. And as it left the ranch um, when I was 21. Got it. So when, thinking about you, you mentioned boarding school, and I, I went to boarding school as well. And we had there were there were a few Texas guys, you know, from ranching families there. And I remember just being kind of amazed at at their life and the lifestyle they led. How was that adjustment going from your you know pretty wide open, wild childhood into a into a boarding school environment? I mean, what was that like? Yeah. Well, uh, it was it was a. Com- total blast i mean i i got very homesick for the people and the land and family and my horses no question um but at the same time uh i'm you know i'm i'm an extrovert and and i see the positive and everything so you know hamburgers and renew bicycles girls you know all these things uh athletics um people doing things uh and so I was very, very much into it all the way through my sophomore year in college. Mm-hmm. And at that point is when I kind of stopped and say, okay, what am I doing? Where am I going? What's happening in my life? Um, and at that point I dropped out of college. So it was, yeah. So that's basically what happened. Uh, it was a great experience um, for me getting out and being in that kind of environment. And so from from there, where did your career go? What was the what was the next step? Did, did you come to Colorado after that, or any other steps along the way? No, um, it took me eight years or so to get through college. Okay, um, 
I'm just not a, not a student. And I finally landed in this class with this guy on a creative writing workshop. And I got kicked out of college uh, a couple times for bad grades and um, just was floating around. And finally, this guy said, you could be a writer. And I'd never even thought about writing or anything. And so that led to me getting a degree in translation and creative writing. And then I traveled um, Europe, South America, I mean, uh, Central America, Mexico, worked for a long time on big ranches in, um, in Australia. So I just traveled and worked on ranches and I worked up in, in the Bering Sea, uh, fishing, commercial fishing, just kind of was exploring the world. My dad says, don't study agriculture, uh, get out of, get out of, um, college, uh, study something you, you, you're interested in from someone that is a good teacher, someone who knows a lot, inspires you and then get out and go to work for people who are doing it. And so I spent a lot of time chasing those kind of people around like Bud Williams, livestock handling, uh, Ray hunt, horsemanship, Tom Lasseter, uh, beef genetics, uh, Bill Sanders. He was a businessman from Chicago uh, just people like that that I work for, and um, because they were the leaders in in their fields, and I basically did that through my twenties, and I uh, got my first serious professional career, I guess, job when I was thirty, managing a ranch. And I, up to that point, I was I was headed um, on horseback from from uh, Oregon down to Argentina. I was going to write a book about cowboys around the world. And I um, only got one chapter, and I was Australia. So I was headed down. Anyway, got diverted, and I got my first real job when I was 30 managing a ranch. Was was that a was there some event that happened that made you say, "All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna get a you know quote a, a real job now"? Because I, you know, I had a I kind of did a bunch of different stuff, and then when I was in my right when I turned 30, I had this health scare, and that kind of shook me up and got me huh. focused in uh-huh. just almost like a, almost like a crazy person. Like it just got me so focused relatively quickly. Yeah. And so, I mean, was there, was there an event or was it just a culmination of all these cool experiences you've been having? And you're like, all right, let's, let's put this all to work at, at a, you know, at, no, at a, really, it was, really? it was, no, it was, I met a, I met a guy at a bull sale. And like I said, I was, I was on this other path. I was headed, I was getting ready to go on this long, you know, two or three, four year trip. And, uh, this guy just turned me on. He said, I got a big ranch. Um, I need someone to run it. Um, I, and then after that, I'm going to buy ranches. I'm going to build a ranching empire across the Western United States. And I need someone to do it on the ground. And, um, and, and he flew me to Chicago and he just kind of swept me away and said, you can be my partner. And we'll, you know, so it's laid this huge, fantastic dream out in front of me. And I said, hell yeah, I'll try that. And he was a good guy and had not really nice family. And I was kind of in a, you know, in a place in my life where, uh, uh, you know, it was this dream I was kind of leaving behind, but it wasn't end of the world. And it just, it just excited me more. So that's what I did. And so when did Ranchlands come into play? I mean, I know the the chronology of, of like when it started, but wh- what were you doing? I'd say in the year in the year or two before you won the lease for Chico yeah. Basin. Well, from the time I was thirty to the time I was forty-five, I worked for this man for five years, and then I left there 
and went to work for the Lasser family for 10 years outside of uh, Lyman, Colorado. Mm-hmm. Because they, they were professionals. And the other guy, he was an absentee owner, and he was coming in with a lot of money. And, and it just, things just didn't didn't go well because of the you know subsidy and it wasn't really real um in terms of my work being um um you know if you go to work somewhere and there's consequences for doing the wrong thing well that's kind of that's real life whereas this guy you know just threw money at it so anyway i went to work for the lassiters uh who were life lifelong family friends spent 10 years with them and then that's when the the Chico Basin Ranch uh, request for proposal came out, and and when I answered that, so I, I turned four, I was a forty five, I guess. And can for people who don't know, and I think most most everybody listening to this will know, but can you just give an overview of ranch lands as as it is today? What you guys do, your philosophy, just kind of the, the overview of the business. Sure. Uh, well, ranch lands is a is a livestock uh, re- company, and we manage ranches that we lease, we own no land. We own all the buffalo and all the horses and cattle that we run. And that is the economic core of, of what we do and, and what we love doing. Um, we have evolved over time to look at land as a multidimensional resource where we run a uh, suite of businesses uh, that include hospitality, a leather shop. Uh, we have a ranch management company uh, we offer strategic management advice to people. Um, we have a really big education program that sees roughly 2,000 kids to the ranch. Uh, we have an art program that brings performing artists uh, and um, and art uh, painters and and photographers, and we have shows and concerts. Um, and all of that has has evolved over time. One of the cool things that happened, you know, whenever you get into something, there's always something you can't predict, right? Yeah. Um, it's, it's unexpected. And and what happened was that we opened the gates to the public. The Nature Conservancy was the other finalist. So I gave them the, the proposal, and I said, you guys actually won this because I'm stuck with paying the bill <laughs> and making it work. And you guys, I can. I want you guys to come and do all those things that you wanted to do. I want you know. Let's create some kind of uh, relationship here. And so um, we had uh, a bird banding station started up right away, um, and um, we, a lot of things happened that all of a sudden there were school kids and people wanting to come out to the ranch to um, to, to the banding station to to see a real working ranch, and and that has led to us looking at the Gulf or, or realizing how big the Gulf is between people living in town and people living on ranches out away from town. And it's growing wider and wider because we meet all these kids, their parents, the teachers. We have workshops that, that um, teach um, roping, horsemanship, financial planning, plant, plant identification, painting, photography, all these different things for adults. So we come in contact with a lot of people and, and there's there's such a wide gulf between people and nature. Um, and so we have these classes for these kids and these adults so trying to bridge that gap. And so that's what Ranchland has become. 
Um, we're a cattle bison operation, but we have all these other things that are non non monetary, non non economic that basically are trying to create a forum for talking about conservation and why ranching is so important in terms of managing the land and creating a healthy healthy environment, health, health, healthy natural environment. Um, because we're out here already and we're living on the land and we care deeply, all ranchers care deeply about the land and nature and stuff. And so all we have to do is, is kind of change the perspective we as ranchers have of ourselves. You know, most ranchers, um, we think, well, we're horsemen, we're cattlemen, we're ranchers, but we don't think ourselves as, as environmentalists, whereas conservation is a product that we produce just like beef. Um, but the problem is we don't see ourselves as doing that. Um, and, and so Ranchlands has evolved toward trying to galvanize a movement, a grassroots kind of movement where the future of ranching is, is based on pr- producing um, conservation as a product. So it's kind of long-winded. No, uh, I love it. Question, but, I love it. That, that's exactly um, what I wanted to hear. And, and um, when, when I was out visiting with you a few weeks back out of the ranch, one of the things you mentioned that I thought was pretty interesting was how, you know, you, you've created these other revenue sources for the ranch, for the ranch so that uh-huh. say if there's yeah. a, a super dry year and you – you you yeah. really gonna need to pull back on capacity. Um, you can do that without worrying about going bankrupt, and you can do what's best for the land because you've got these other right. revenue sources. You don't have to push it. You don't have to overgraze. Can you talk a little bit about that? Just about your maybe your grazing philosophy and and the the health yeah. of the grasslands. Sure. Well, you know, for a long time, the environmental movement looked at profitability as as a um, mining process, mm-hmm. you know, that making money is not a good thing. But uh, I think that conservation and and economics are very much the same thing. If, if you don't, I mean, that's one of the problems that, you know, large conservation groups have today is raising money to go out and do something positive on the land environmentally. And then every year they have to go out and do it again and again and again. And so how long will that last? How long can you just go out philanthropically and raise money. Whereas if you have a ranch and it's diversified and you have uh, multiple revenue streams, well then if, when it dries, gets drier, you can destock immediately because you're not depending on that revenue. And so you're reducing the stress on the land during those stressful times. And it's so important um, to do. And that's in, in, and so that's the big reason why we are diversified. Um, so to answer your question about grazing, you know, Alan Savory is a, um, one of my heroes and one of the most important, if not the most important environmentalist in the world today. Um, I studied um, with him in the early 80s and learned about his ideas, his work that talks about rotating cattle and putting them into large groups so that the cattle uh, are emulating bison or wildebeest, you know, who travel in these huge herds. Um, you know, historically, I think there's stories of trains stopping for nine days to let one herd of bison by. Mm-hmm. And so we try to do that same thing. They would come through and they would graze 
plants. They would defecate, urinate, recycle. But the the biggest thing that they did was that they lay in a brittle environment, with a dry environment. They would lay the, the grass down on the ground where it could rot and recycle back. Otherwise, it just sticks up in the air and oxidizes. Mm-hmm. So that's the role that large herding animals played in the grasslands. They disturbed the land, just like wind or fire or water. Grazing disturbance is a critical aspect to um, the regeneration of surface of the ground, cycling material, organic material back into the soil. So that's what we're trying to do is we put our herds together as big as we can, and we put them into one pasture and rotate those animals in a migratory fashion around the ranch and movement is determined by the speed with which the grass grows or the forks grow behind you. So the slower they're growing, like in the drought, Mm -hmm. you're putting, you you graze very slowly. And if it's faster, it's growing, the faster you graze. I I love that. And I love studying that. And, you know, Alan Savory's work is so important. I've read so much of that. And then um, our mutual friend, Jim Howell, his book Mm -hmm. is so great. And it's just, uh, it's the kind of thing where I'm always surprised that people don't understand that. But, you know, talking with Jim, he says if, if people let him explain it, you know, no matter who it is, they, they get it and it makes sense. And it's um, it's just so interesting. Um, so, you know, you're in business now with your son and your daughter. And we talked a little bit about this in person a few weeks back. But I've got two little girls, uh, four and one. And the idea of thinking, you know, one day they're going to be – grown-ups and they're going to be doing their own thing and i just I always wonder how does that feel <laughs> how does that feel to you to see these kids hmm. that were toddlers at one point now running these tens of thousands a hundred thousand acre ranches how, how does that how do you feel about that or how great is it <laughs> oh god i mean it's it's like like i can't believe it half the time it's a fantasy it's a dream come true i mean that's people ask me what do you like best about ranching it's that fact that I spent so much time with my kids when they're little kids, you know, small little kids, they would go with me in the truck. And when they're real little, they'd be in a pillow in front of my horse, you know, my front of my saddle. And when they're a little bit bigger, they'd be behind me. And then when a little bit bigger, they'd be on a horse with me pulling them along. And a little bit bigger, they'd be on their own horse with their own reins. And so I've spent a lot of time and uh, with them and Duke runs all the ranches. Tess runs all, all the non-ag side of the ranch, business development, concerts, art shows, uh, our leather shop, uh, business development. Um, and I, you know, I talked to Duke eight times yesterday. So we're on the phone constantly. We see each other all the time. I live on a ranch that's about seven hours by road away, but we're constant communication. I'm up there every week, every other week and vice versa. So it's just incredible. And, and it's just, you know, it's something that's disappearing today, too. You don't have that passing on of the family business very much anymore. Well, that, um, that's a question I wanted to ask you because when I was in school, I took a class about family businesses. And there was some stat, you know, that by the third generation, some like over 90 percent of family businesses, no matter what it is, is done. They just, you know, through different different uh, dynamics or whatever. And so what techniques have you used to try to keep this family business intact? Because it's challenging no matter what, and you're in a challenging business. Yeah. Well, first of all, I never uh, – I, I never um, – I tried to never make them feel like it was expected. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
So you guys, I want to do whatever you guys want to do. If you don't want to come home, that's fantastic. I'm, I'm going to help you whatever you want to do. But I want you to know that if you ever want to come home, um, there is a place for you. So that's the first thing. And the second thing was that I involved them in everything that was going on to the extent that I could. So when they were little kids, we hired someone. I would talk about who that was. I'd talk about the interview that we had, the good things, the bad things, the hopes, you know, disappointments. Come back and talk about what's going on on the ranch. We bought cattle. We're thinking about buying cattle. We're selling cattle. We took a loss. We took a hit. We, we did well here. There's some birders here that are um, from Wisconsin. Let's go talk to them and see how they're doing. Guests are here. You guys are going to be responsible for taking care of these guests. There were times when my wife and I left and left them in charge as 7th and 8th graders to take care of people coming from Germany to enjoy the ranch. So they had high levels of responsibility as well as really knowing what was happening the whole time, even though they weren't involved. So I think that is super important because then they're not glamorized. They're not glamorizing it. Mm-hmm. They're, you know, as this cool place, they're saying this is the reality of it. And I, and I have uh, something at stake because I have been part of it. So I think, uh, you know, those combination of things have, have, uh, have been what, now I have two girls that are out and, you know, with the, everyone, all four of them had to have to go out and do something totally independent of their own before coming back to, that was part of it. One thing that I really admire about Duke and Tess is how humble they are. It's hard work and it's humility. And I think those are such important traits and I hope that my girls will have them. And so just very selfishly, how do you do that as a dad? <laughs> Tell me how to do that. <laughs> oh, God, I don't know. Uh, I have no idea. Well, if you figure it out, um, you tell me. Cause that's, uh, or you could write a book and you, I mean, you, if you could figure, if you could yeah. bottle that up. I well, guess just don't let them get away with anything. <laughs> that's growing a, up. Uh, yeah, keep it simple. Know. That makes sense. Um, yeah. I, you know, in my old job selling ranches and then, you know, somewhat in my new job with in full-time conservation, I, I'm always dealing with, with folks in the ranching world or in agriculture in general. And, you know, sometimes I run into folks that have this, um, it kind of seems like a, almost like a negative attitude thinking, you know, talking about how the past was, was better than it is now. And there are all these forces aligning against them. And while that may be true in a lot of ways, the thing that's always struck me about you and your family is this realistic positivity and you're looking towards the future. And I remember when we were visiting a few weeks ago, we were just talking and somehow pretty quickly the conversation went to, you know, carbon credits that are going to be coming in the future for grasslands and all this just innovation that you're looking towards. And, you know, you've proven over decades your ability to innovate and make things happen that generally have have not happened in agriculture in the past and just through creativity and positivity. So can you talk about the importance of positivity and why that is such a maybe why, if it has been a key to your success? Well, I, I guess, first of all, I'm a very positive person. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I always, uh, if I see a problem, I immediately look for a solution. I don't dwell on the problem for, for only for as long as it, it takes me to, to uh, say, okay, how will we get around this? So, and so I guess that's the, the biggest, the biggest thing is just, I just have this way of, of, 
kind of knocking the problem, looking at a problem, change, changing an op- a problem into an opportunity as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess that's a big part of it. And um, I guess I just feel that we're, you know, I guess I could spend time thinking about how cool it would have been to, to have been raised or, you know, live in the past. And I, and I do, but, but we're not there. We're here. And, um, so why not, why not make the best of it? I mean, you could, you, you have a choice. You can make the best of it or you could sit there and complain about it. So why not, why not just make the best of it? Um, and I don't know. I mean, that's a pretty simplistic answer, I guess, but, um, that's, that's how I see it. Have you um, always been that way? Have you always been positive or has that been a, um, something you've had to train yourself to be? No, I think I've always been positive. I've always, always just kind of jumped at things and tried to, to make it work. And so whether that's, you know, riding a horse and really learning, um, the best way to do that or, um, handling cattle. I mean, those are two things that I just love doing. And over time, I just, you know, they fed me, um, and, and through that process, I learned more and more about them. Uh, you know, I think it's just about growing. How, Mm -hmm. how can we continue growing as a person? And if you're not going to grow, if you're going to sit back on your heels and, do routine things that are boring. Uh, but if you get out and challenge yourself and make mistakes and jump in and don't worry about it, uh, well then you're going to grow and you're going to be, you're going to have fun. And the people that you have with you are going to have fun and they're going to be inspired. And so it all becomes this, this, um, you know, bigger, bigger than one person kind of thing, which is what's happened. And so you're, you know, obviously in the ranching world and which overlaps a lot with real estate and it's, you know, it's big business and there's a lot of money flowing around. And, uh, you know, in my experience in working in real estate, there are some shifty characters that come in and out. And so, you know, one of the things that I've always admired about you guys, you know, based on, on reputation and, and the people that we know mm-hmm. in common is that you operate your business on the highest level of integrity. You know, you, you do deals the, the way you say you're going to do them. There's no, there's no tricky business there. And mm-hmm. unfortunately that can be rare in any business. Um, can you talk a little bit about the importance of, of integrity in these business dealings? And then I'd love to hear, you know, how do you handle it if somebody comes along and you find out maybe that this person isn't the, the best person to be dealing with? Cause I, you know, I've run into that throughout my career mm-hmm. and I'm always trying to kind of figure out the the best way to deal with these kind of slimy yeah. business people. Uh, well, my dad, uh, he, he always said, as long as you know they're a crook, you can work with them. And <laughs> you don't know they're a crook. <laughs> so you better be careful going in and really do your homework and understand who you're dealing with, mm-hmm. first of all. And then, um, I don't know, uh, the importance of integrity is like it's supreme this uh, thing that we all have to, but I, I think it, it starts with who you are. And if you are an honest person, well, then that's how you're going to treat people. And that's how you're going to are, that's how you're going to be. Um, I had a, I had a, uh, I guess a story along those lines. I had a guy, uh, actually he wasn't a guy I worked with. He was part of the crew and he, we were at a meeting one day and he said, you know, there's people around here who do, don't really think you're doing 
good stuff or, you know, I forget what he said, but anyway, he was just saying there's a sentiment out there. And, uh, I said, well, I, I don't understand who that is. I don't really care, but, uh, I can tell you that we pay all our bills on time. There's not a single person out there who's waiting for a check. When we say we're going to do something, we do everything we can, even if it's someone that's calling for a job that says, um, and he's obviously not qualified, um, or if it's a simple question from a sixth grader, you know, from Georgia, uh, we always answer or always try to answer the, the, everything, um, because everybody's important no matter what. And that's just, you know, it's not like we decided to do that. It's just what we do and what we, my, my family's done and, and friend, family, friends, and uh, that's the circle that we run in. So it's kind of a cultural, I, you know, I don't think it's unique to us. It's just, a, you know, we, we become the people we surround ourselves with. And if those people mm-hmm. challenge us for them, then we really do grow and we become something greater. And I think, that's the secret. I mean, that's part of it is, is surrounding yourself with those kinds of people, um, who hold you accountable, um, and, and vice versa. I think that's great advice. Thinking about, you know, your, your business partners and two of the biggest ones are the state land board who owns the Chico, the land where the Chico Basin Ranch is, and then the nature conservancy. And I think those are just yeah. such, um, wonderful examples of partnerships and how you know two groups can can partner together and really come up with something special. And so could you talk a little bit maybe about uh, about both but I'm particularly interested in your relationship yeah. with the state land board and how well that's gone. Yeah, well, I really appreciate you asking about them because they've been a huge part of who we are. Um you know, the state land board took a chance on me. I was I was pretty much just a cowboy. I didn't have any money. Um, didn't really have any experience in terms of me managing ranch alone. Um, and they came up with a, a model, uh, like there's a departure, radical departure from everything that they had done before. You know, most land leases from the state land board are five year terms, strictly grazing. But the Chico said, okay, we're going to give you 25 years and you have grazing rights. You have recreation rights. Um, you have hunting rights, you have all the, everything is going to come with it. But in return, we want you to have an education program, a recreation program for the public. And we want you to manage the land in a, uh, conserve in a, um, an environmentally friendly way. Uh, we want, um, all these kinds of things. And, um, it, we have not had one single hiccup along the way. It's all been, uh, thank you for doing such a great job. I'm not talking about them saying that to us, but us saying that to them. Thank you for your support. Thank you for, for coming out and visiting us. Um, so, um, it, it's just, uh, it, it is a great partnership. We've, we, they want their land managed uh, responsibly, environmentally, socially, culturally. Uh, uh, they want a strong infrastructure. They want all these things. It's the same thing we want. And 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 the beautiful thing, the really the 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 in my mind, probably the most important thing that happened is that they gave us a long term lease. And when you have twenty five years to live on a ranch, well, then you can justify spending 
money spending resources that you have that you wouldn't be on a short-term deal. So yeah. that's been a really, really uh, important thing. And they've, they're just receptive to everything that we do. And uh, they're very, very talented people and very, um, very, uh, they care about the land. You know, that's a huge resource that they, that they manage for the state of Colorado. And they do an incredible job. Um, and we're just lucky to, to be in partnership with them. The Nature Conservancy, um, I feel the same way about. Um, they, we started with them in 2004 and um, managed the, the Mena Zapata Ranch, 110,000 acre ranch. And we also run the lodge that they use for their development program. And uh, they have a huge bison herd there, and we they they believe in us. We'd never even seen a bison before we went there, <laughs> so they said, you know, it's, you know, it's kind of the same thing. They took a big chance on us, and, and um, we have not had an, an issue uh, of any consequence um, throughout our entire relationship, and um, they support us and all the other things we're doing uh, um, in, in other areas, and. Uh, they're just great people. I mean, so, I mean, I just can't say enough about either group. Can you talk a little bit about the taking over or, or starting a, a bison operation? Because that, that you know, in, in theory, it's pretty similar, but I would, you know, I think the reality is it's, it's a lot different. So how did you get your head around that? I mean, you know, going from having never, never really spent any time around bison to, to running this huge herd, what yeah. was that like? Well, it was really exciting, and, and it was scary. Uh, you know, there was 2,500 head, and we found out once we got there that they'd been chased around by the previous group of people, um, and which is um, and basically taught them to run away. And and so uh, our our skills at at uh, stockmanship, uh, running. Cattle has always been more of an art than it is anything else. So applying those principles to wild animals, bison are basically, those especially are wild. And so gathering once a year and, and um, trying to do it in a minimally stressful way and um, trying to work with the land, with the animals and so forth. Um, it, we went from, uh, we've gone, I mean, it's been a, been a, a really steep learning curve too that's i think if at first it took us two weeks three weeks and we've got it down to uh, five days now oh wow so it's it's been really really fun um yeah and i'd love you know i can't believe that we that we hadn't been around bison before there's amazing creatures do you see an opportunity for bison you know for there to be a a large market for that because it's you know it seems like it's there are a lot of ranchers that are focusing in on that, that are, you know, like Dan O'Brien um, and, and just different yeah. people that are, are really committed to it. I mean, where, where do you see that as just as strictly as a, as a business? Where do you see that going? Well, I think, I think there's, there's two, two facets. One is that they're, you know, there's, there's a sensational thing, mm-hmm. you know, they they strike a chord with all of us because of what they are. But, um, and they are a great product in terms of protein, and you know, they're a specialty product, you know, worth more money in the stores and so forth because of that, because they're seen as being natural and more and more healthy. Um, but 
they cattle are much easier to handle. So in terms of grazing, uh, you can manipulate uh, everything that's done to favor the land, for example, and, and with cattle and with what in ways with cattle you cannot do as easily with buffalo. I'm not saying you can't do it. It just takes a lot more effort. And um, cattle have been genetically selected for producing, you know, a high ratio of meat to bone. You know, so you, so they're they're they have that going for them as well. Um, plus, I think cattle have a cultural hold on us. Mm-hmm. I love cattle. And I love bison, but I love cattle. I love just going out and, and watching them and moving them and, you know, and all that. So, I, you know, I think that bison, you know, provide two things. One is a more sensational romance. Another is they, they are a, a good product. Yeah, that that all makes sense. Um mm-hmm. You know, speaking of uh, another term that comes up a lot that I, that you hear kind of on the internet or in the news is regenerative agriculture. Mm -hmm. And can you talk a little bit about ranch lands role in that and just kind of your thoughts on on regenerative agriculture and how that plays into what y'all are doing? Yeah. uh, That word has for some reason over the last, I don't know if it's six months, 12 months, just very recently has just taken off (laughs) regenerative agriculture. And I see that I see a, a good thing and a bad thing. The good thing is that is what agriculture is, and and it's finally taking a hold. And people, there is a voice rising about the positive things that agric- responsible grazing can do, and that that is what we need. It's it's because it's true. Uh, if if you if someone is listening and do not believe that, well, just don't just go visit a rancher and live with them or or spend some time with them and and keep an open mind and then come back and reassess what you're thinking um because it is a, it is a very important role that ranching uh and and responsible grazing provides on the other hand uh one of the things that it implies when you say regenerative agriculture, it implies that there there are ranchers or ranching in general is not regenerative, right? Mm-hmm. It says, oh, there's those out here who are doing it right, and there's all those others who are not doing it right. And, you know, a lot of people ask us, why are you so, you know, environmentally focused? And I say, well, I'm really not a lot different than most ranchers because every rancher I know cares deeply about the land um, and the problem that we have had. And there have been problems in the past. I'm not denying that. But most of the time it's from lack of knowledge or it's from lack of financial uh, well-being, you know, being in a drought and having cattle as your only income and having a note at the bank and you're just forced to do things. So um, I'd just like to say that regenerative agriculture is a great thing that's happening that it's rising in the focus of you know today's media and uh environmental consciousness but at the same time it it, um i'd also like to say that agriculture as a whole is regenerative it's just we have to find ways to work together with scientists with non-traditional groups we have to view ourselves 
as environmentalists, ranchers are environmentalists. Uh, we are environmentalists, and and I'll go forward under that flag. No, I think that's wonderful, and that, that was one of the things that stuck out when we were visiting a few weeks ago. Is you know we're honoring ranch lands, or Palmer Land Trust is honoring ranch lands at our Southern yeah. Colorado Conservation Awards. And you, the first thing you and all your family members said, you made it very clear that you know all ranchers are conservationists, and 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 I think that mm-hmm. is something that really needs to be hit home because it the regenerative agriculture thing is great, but it almost it it. It splits the it splits yeah, the group. You know what exactly. I mean? Exactly. Yeah. I'd love to hear more about your heroes and mentors because I knew you. I knew you had a lot, but I didn't realize that you had kind of gone along and 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 spent time. You know, focused time trying to learn from all these smart people. So, could you maybe talk uh, about one or two of those folks and and maybe lessons yeah. learned from them? Well, uh, Bud Williams is a uh, animal handler. I mean, he has passed. But his legacy was was um, handling cattle in a in a in a way that um, reduces stress. Looking at life through um, the animal's eyes and, and and trying to get them to move in ways that are natural to them, as opposed to getting behind them and screaming and hollering and pushing them. And then um, Alan um, Alan Savory, I, I won't. Talk, where we talked about him. Mm-hmm. Um, Ray Hunt was a great horseman that did basically the same kind of thing that uh, Bud Williams just looked at horses from their perspective. I mean, looked at life through their eyes and tried to to, to manage and work with horses um, to try to get them to do things from, you know, because they wanted to do it rather than, than um, forcing them pushing him, screaming at him. Uh, Bill Sanders was, um, is a, um, one of America's greatest businessmen. And I've ran his ranch for five years. And I always, always say that I got my PhD in business from, from Bill Sanders. Mm-hmm. He redefined, redefined the commercial real estate industry. Uh, I think a lot of people would agree on that. And, um, let me see. Oh, Tom Lasseter. So Tom, um, he founded the uh, the Beefmaster breed, which is one of three American breeds, and it's basically the embodiment of a management philosophy that selects coals and selects animals to be adapted to their natural environment. So if a cow loses a calf to a coyote, you get rid of the cow, not the coyote, because she wasn't able to protect her her um, progeny and if, if uh, an animal becomes anemic due to infestation of parasites, we get rid of that animal. You don't spray the whole herd because you have indeterminate dosage by the weakest animal. So, you know, he's way ahead of his time. Yeah. Um, he select the animals as a, he, he selected on, uh, based on a herd genetics rather than selecting individuals. That one over there is the best. That one over there is the best. And I'm going to pick them because of all this data they give me. He says, here's a herd. I'm going to raise the the standard threshold and the ones that excel, we put back into the herd. The ones that fall out of the bottom, leave the herd. So survival of the fittest, basically. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. So Ronald Tobias was a writer. He changed my life. 
Uh, he's a filmmaker, writer, poet, living in Montana. Great friend, amazing guy. That's an all-star team. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Thinking about the way you're always looking forward and, and you know anticipating the future and excited about the future, where do you see things going in, ran- in the ranching world now? I mean, we, we spoke a little bit about this last time we visited, but I'd love to hear kind of your predictions uh-huh. or where you think things are going to end up. Well, I think that ranching is going to become uh, the most compelling alternative to large-scale conservation in the West. Um, we're, we, we talked a little bit about this already, but, um, looking at land multidimensionally, looking at ourselves as, as naturalists, environmentalists, whatever you want to call someone who cares about the land. Uh, those are, those are things that we have to do as ranchers in order to, to preserve our legacy and ran- as ranchers. And I think that will happen. Um, you know, ranchers are old creatures and been around for a long time. And it's one of the few ways of making a living that are living that are, that is handed down generationally. So as cool as that is, it also in some ways puts blinders on, you know, in the sense that each generation does things the way the previous generation did. Um, and so we have to be careful and be in and open ourselves to new ways of thinking, new groups of people who actually have the same values we do, but perhaps in the past um, we we had more of an antagonistic kind of relationship. Uh, we actually we all want clean water, we want clean air, we want healthy wildlife, and so forth. So I think that's where I think we're going. No, well, that that sounds like a good spot to me. Um, I've got a few questions that I like to ask people towards the end of these interviews, um, and it's it's Uh been fun to compare and contrast them. Can we run through those real quick, and then you can get back to everything you got going on? If you had to name one or two or three, and this would be a good question, especially for you, what are some of your favorite books specifically about the American West? Oh, there's there's a great book that I really enjoyed called Cadillac Desert. Oh, yeah. You know, the water history of the West. Um. Paulo Neruda is my favorite of all. He's, you know, Chilean poet. Mm-hmm. I read all his biographies and all his poetry. Um, yeah, if you give me a little more time, I can make a list. <laughs> no, yeah, that, no, that's good. The, so the, the poetry, <laughs> if, if I were to pick up a, a, a poetry book by that guy, what was his name again? I'm sorry. Pablo Neruda. Would I be able to get into it, or is it like PhD level poetry? Because I need to, I want to understand poetry, but I have a I have a really hard time with it. Well, um, read his uh, his twelve love poems in a song of desperation. That's his first book he wrote, and they're all love poems. Mm-hmm. And um, that is one of the most beautiful books ever written. Um, and he he writes. His language is super rich. It doesn't always really make sense his poems, mm-hmm. so you can't read one of his poems and, and 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 get a verbal message. I'm telling you something with these words. It's more of a visual, you know, kind of something you, you sink your teeth, in, teeth into and and then taste the flavor. That's more like what his poetry is. Cool. I'll um, check that out. That's what uh, I had a poet yeah. on named Chris Dombrowski, and he said. 
you know, one of the biggest mistakes you can make when you're trying to read poetry is to go into it with the question, what does this mean? And he said, you know, what does a, yeah. a beautiful mountain sunset mean? Or what does a glass of wine mean? It, you can't go in with that. You just need to take it for what it is and kind of see what it does when it gets in your brain. So cool. I'll put links to that. Yeah. So last one of these questions um, that, I'm, mm-hmm. that I'm interested to hear from you with all your experiences in the outdoors and, you know, working the land, working mm-hmm. with animals. Is there one single experience that you think back as being the most powerful outdoor experience you've had? And it could that could mean it, scary, you know, you almost lost your life, or funny, or just a, a kind of a life-changing, powerful experience that has, you know, changed your life one way or the other. Does anything come to mind on that? I imagine you got a, a long list of them. Yeah, I, I can think of several, but um, the one that I keep, I've always come back to, um, and it's not really one experience, but something I used to do is uh, as a kid, I'd get my horses and I'd tie them up. I think I mentioned this, um, head to tail mm-hmm. and I'd have like seven or eight, nine horses. And I'd, um, I'd have a, a pack on one of them with some basic food and I just go out and camp. And I always would go to this part of the ranch that had hardly any water. So therefore very little livestock or anything else. And I just stay out there with them and I was just by myself with them and with a fire. And I just would get on, I'd stake all my horses out and, and then I'd, I'd grab one in the morning and I'd go riding out a lot of times, uh, bareback. And then I'd come back and just spending time out on the land with these horses, um, and I always think about that. I always tell people about that. And that's probably what has pulled me back always toward the land is mm-hmm. the experience of going out with, with these animals and just being out there in a very, very kind of, just, uh, just being there, not, not gathering cattle, not hunting, not, you know, there to do anything other than just to be there with the horses and explore. Well, this was really great, Duke, and I, I can't thank you enough for taking the time, and, and more importantly, thank you for everything you're doing. I mean, it's inspiring, and it's so important, and you're, you're, you know, it's what you're doing on the land there, but the message is spreading out just, you know, infinitely beyond the, y'all's land throughout the whole world, and it's it's really inspiring to see, and I'm excited to see you guys at the Conservation Awards in a few weeks, but thank you for taking the time, and thank you for everything you do. Sure. No, it's uh, really appreciate you, your interest in what we're doing and the attention you've paid to us. It's, uh, that means a lot to us and the time you've taken to chase me down. Um, (laughs) and it's been fun talking. It really has, you know, your questions have been great and thoughtful. And I I think, you know, I really appreciate your level of understanding, um, about the, not only the work we do, but you know, the, the the work that needs to be done out uh, in this this world. Hey, it's Ed again. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast, and thanks for listening to that particular episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Before you go, I've got three quick things. Number one, if you like the podcast, please do me a huge favor. Either pass it along to a friend who may be interested, share it on your social media, and or go to iTunes and give it a five-star review. All those things would mean a lot to me, and they would really help to spread the word about the podcast. Number two, if you've listened to many of these episodes, you know that I love reading and I love talking about books. Every other month, I send out a quick email 
with a few books that I've recently read and highly recommend. The subjects are varied, but they're pretty much all nonfiction with an emphasis on history, biographies, adventure narratives, and topics related to the American West. There are no sales pitches for ranches, no spam, no other kind of nonsense, just books. So if you'd like to sign up for the list, head to Mountain and Prairie slash reading, or just go to Mountain and Prairie and there's a massive tab at the top that says book recommendations. Click on it. There are a ton of good books that I've read. Some of the old email lists are on there. Uh, you can go crazy. There are a lot of books. And finally, if you know anyone I should interview for the podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out and let me know. All my contact info is at mountainperry.com and I'm on all the social media stuff, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, blah, blah, blah. So feel free to reach out. I'd love to have some recommendations and suggestions of interesting people I should meet. All right, that's it. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon. Bye.